certainly that's the person we celebrate as the God who's the Ancient of Days. Now I'm going to call up this PowerPoint just in case somewhere along the line it actually starts working, but uh, we're not going to hold our breath on that, okay? What I'm going to say is if you would like to have the PowerPoint later so you can follow notes because most of what I'm going to say is in them, come up after the service, see me down front, and uh, give me your email address and I'll send you the PowerPoint. How's that? That'll save you from writing furiously trying to stay up with me as we go through this. But anyway, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for the privilege to come. And as uh, was said earlier, we're all very, I think, distressed about what's happening over between Russia and Ukraine. I didn't mention at this first service, but uh, my middle son and his wife, Dave and Tina, two grandsons, served for 10 years in Siberia. And, uh, and then God asked them to take a greater role, so they are now the Eurasia directors for SEND International, and they look after Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Georgia, and a few of the Chechnya areas. And uh, these last six weeks have been pretty exciting because in that taking on that role, which just started about November, uh, they moved to Kiev, Ukraine. And uh, so the boys were enjoying, uh, actually, I guess they went in about, uh, about August. The boys were really enjoying their first time being in an organized school, high school, Christian high school in English. And of course, that's been all ripped away. Uh, so they are traveling like vagabonds. They, they actually were on a mission trip to one of the teams when the war broke out. They didn't think it was going to happen, and they'd all traveled with one suitcase each. And uh, so then they left two of the suitcases there in Lviv, where they're meeting, went across the border to Poland with just two suitcases, four people, and uh, it was a 50-hour journey, which normally would take two hours. And uh, they were in Krakow, Poland for a number of weeks. They have now moved to Turkey because they had a conference that they were running that was set up last week, and now they're not sure where they're going to live. So it's just interesting. They're looking for where they're going to stay for the next period of time till it had already been planned for him to come home this summer because of meetings that he's responsible. They're going to come as a family in July. So if you'd pray for them, I'd appreciate it. It makes life interesting, very interesting. So, a number of months ago, I was asked if I would speak again, like I did last summer, and I have done previously, and I said, sure, I'd love to. So we settled on a date, and then I get the fact that I'm going to be part of a series on Nehemiah, only to find out I'm going to be doing the last message. And guess what they gave me for a topic? It's already been mentioned. Failure. I thought, well, that's ironic. They want me to come and be a failure and <laughs> see if I can do that well. And uh, anyway, but that's the top final topic that we're going to talk about. Um, I, I just want you to know that uh, God has been good to me. This is an interesting topic. I've wrestled over it. I thought about it. But uh, this concluding message of Nehemiah, I think we want to leave it thinking not just about failure, but how God uses failure to move us forward into serving him in new and fresh ways. So that's what we want to do. I remember reading a book when I was a younger pastor by Dr. Erwin Lutzer, who is the long-term pastor of Moody Church, and the title of the book was Failure, the Backdoor to Success. 
And I thought, that really makes a lot of sense to me. When I was the president of Heritage, as was mentioned, we had an annual event at the start of every new school year. It was an orientation for the first-year students, the new first-year students, and their parents. So we'd gather in the chapel, and you know the deans would talk about stuff that they needed to know technical. And then I'd get to speak to everybody as the president. And one of the first things I'd always say is, I want to thank you parents for sending your young adults to our school. I just want to let you know we're going to we're going to teach them how to fail well. Well, honestly, you know, helicopter parents don't respond very well to that kind of, t- that kind of conversation. And uh, I'd get this look like, I'm investing all this money so they can fail? Like, my kids never failed at anything. They're perfect, you know, all that kind of stuff. But actually, you learn much more from failure than you do from success. Did you know that? much more from failure, as long as you embrace it the way God's designed it to be embraced. I think, yeah, we're just going to have to, if any of you actually feel inspired to turn around and see, you can do that anytime. I'm going to keep up with it just in case you do. But so my title, I changed the title from failure to failure, but that's not the end of the story. Amen? Failure, but that's not the end of the story. So I'd like to read this thought to you. Failures in life remain failures unless you embrace God's wisdom and power. And God gives you that wisdom and power to learn from the failures. These failures provide an opportunity to grow as you correct and change your attitudes and your actions. The story of failure doesn't have to be the story of your life. Just like the story in Nehemiah, while it looks like it ends in failure, is not the story of Nehemiah's life. I want to read the first few verses of Nehemiah 13, if you have your Bible. That's the final chapter of Nehemiah. And just to let you know that they had some success, and yet now a failure. So Nehemiah 13.1, this is the final reform that Nehemiah did before he went on a journey back to, uh, to Babylon. <clears throat> on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, And there was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Now, those of you who have been around church for a long time, remember the story of Balaam, who uh, was hired by Balak, king of Moab, to curse Israel. And you remember the story how Balaam, I'll only say what God says, and on the way, the talking donkey story happens. Remember that? And uh, so if you, if you don't know that story, read the Bible, you'll find it's one of the more interesting ones. But that's what this next little parenthesis is, okay? Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. I think that's such an appropriate intersection in this passage. See, that's what God does. He can turn the circumstances around, amen? You can think things are going downhill. Where is your trust? So what seemed like a curse was going to happen on the people of God ended up being a blessing, and they prospered because of it. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. So here's here's a starting point for our conversation today, this thing of failure and overcoming failure. Failure, overcoming failure. We're going to go through and mention a few other things that are mentioned here. But notice in the text, I just want to point this out while you have your Bibles open there. In verse 14, 
This is Nehemiah's prayer to God. God, remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. So in the midst of what seemed like failure, he's praying to God and saying, God, don't forget. I was, I was faithful to you. I was faithful to you. And then you go down into, into a little farther down, verse 22. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Don't forget, I am trying to deal with failure, Lord. Don't forget it. And then he says down in verse 29, Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and covenant with the priesthood and the Levites. So don't forget the people that forced this on me, Lord. That's the big picture, right? You sometimes get caught in circumstances that you are not responsible for. And then the book ends with this sentence. Remember me with favor, my God. And then the story's over. Seems like, right? Story's over. So we want to take a quick look at this. We're going to start off by saying, let's, let's just start thinking about this story in a bigger picture. The actual books of Ezra and Nehemiah are really one story. In fact, in a lot of the ancient texts, they were one combined book. And uh, so this one story is of three leaders who led three groups of Jews from Persia back to the land where they had been expelled from because of their disobedience. The first person you heard about, if you remember, was Zerubbabel. That's in the book of Ezra. He came back to rebuild the temple in 538 BC. Got it done. It took a lot of time, energy, but they got it done. Not near like the Solomon temple and not the temple that Jesus was in when he was here on earth because that temple that Zerubbabel built had been rebuilt by Herod the Great in order to please the Jews. So... It was not a very good-looking temple. In fact, the Bible says that when the people saw the end result and they were old enough to remember what the temple looked like that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, they wept. (laughs) It was such a shoddy comparison. This is terrible. But it was the place where God dwelt. And then Ezra comes back, and Ezra's job is to renew the worship of the people of God. So he rebuilt their commitment to the Torah. They found the book of God, and then they, uh, he, he reestablished the priesthood, the Levites, the sacrifices. A lot of work, and there was great rejoicing. Then you get to Nehemiah's story, which you were talking about here. And he came back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in 444 BC. So from 538 to 444, almost 100 years, these stories take place. And then the story's over. And literally, friends, there's no more story, advance of the story of God. The written story of God stops there and doesn't start till we see the birth of Jesus, okay? So around 400 years, no written story. A lot was going on but not written in the Bible. Now, it's interesting when you think about this journey back and forth, all this back and forth stuff. Do you realize that the distance between Babylon, the city, the capital city of the country of Babylon, and Jerusalem, that distance was around 1,260 kilometers, about 900 miles. Okay, you get that? Both Zerubbabel and Ezra made that trip and brought a lot of people with them. By the time Nehemiah came along, The capital had been moved to Susa, which was farther east. And now the trip was 1,500 kilometers. And Nehemiah made that at least twice. I was saying to the people the first session, I remember my dad telling me that his grandfather 
two occasions, walked from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, up to Waterloo, Waterloo County. Twice. First time he came looking for a wife, no success. <laughs> Second time he came looking for a job, got a job and got a wife and stayed. So uh, I'm here because he made that journey, you know. And uh, so it's just kind of funny when you think about it. The, um, the, uh, the distance, you know, you, even if you drive in a car at a high rate of speed, it takes you about seven hours to do that distance. So this was a long, long journey, all right? So why am I telling you that? Well, what happened apparently was there were successes, but then for a period of time, Nehemiah went back to report to the king. So some of the successes were the walls were built in 52 days, dedication ceremony filled with joy, all kinds of excitement, the people took ownership of a correction, which is the start of chapter 13. And then Nehemiah returns to Babylon. Now, as best as we can figure it out, for about 20 to 25 years. How do we know that? Well, he states the time that he left, which was around, uh, the, was around the year of 432. And uh, we do know from written records that are available that there was another governor appointed in the area of the province of Palestine by 407. So somewhere between 432, 407, Nehemiah is back reporting to the king, living with the people back in Susa area. You get what I'm saying? And for some reason, he decided to come back and see how things were going in Jerusalem. And he discovered all these failures, all these failures, significant failures of the people of God. And that's what the rest of chapter 13 is about. So what were some of the failures? And I'm going to mention the failures. And here's what I want you to think. We're talking about ancient history. People centered their worship on a physical temple where God was worshipped. I'm going to tell you what the failures were. And I want you to think about how you may be experiencing challenge and failure in your life here. Now, you get the idea? Because the Bible says... We don't worship God in a physical building anymore. You understand, we didn't come here to worship God. We came with the people of God to worship God, right? Because we didn't have to come here. We could do that anywhere. And by the way, the Bible says, you are the temple of God. And the you is both singular and plural depending. So sometimes it's just you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Holy Spirit lives in the combined people of God. You get the idea? So when we think about the failures that happened in Nehemiah's time, let's bring it down and say, well, how does that impact us today as the people of God who have the Holy Spirit living in us and combined in our church? The first failure that he discovered in verses 8 and 9 was that the temple had been polluted by this man called Tobiah. Now, if you remember the story, Tobiah was not a nice guy. He had opposed Nehemiah left and right, all kinds of ways, told lies about him, said all kinds of things. And yet now, in Nehemiah's absence, the high priest allows Tobiah to go into the temple and live there. Can you imagine? He's there living in the temple, living in the storage rooms that were set aside for where God's people gave their offerings, so the food and wine and so on, and the place where they stored all the utensils with which they did the worship of God. Here's Tobiah, this enemy of God, this wicked man living in that presence in that place. Is it any wonder Nehemiah was a bit upset? Any wonder? He was frustrated. This should never have happened. Now, what I want to say to you is, 
if you think about it, is it possible that you might be allowing wicked people who are the enemies of God to take up controlling space in your life? Is it possible? You're the temple. Is it possible that you might be allowing wicked people, enemies of God, to take up controlling space in your life? Have you thought about that? All of us are tempted every day to make choices about who are our friends, who, who are the people that influence us, whether it's sports heroes or movie people or online, social media, whatever. Who are you allowing to enter into your life that are not friendly with God? You need to set some time aside and think about that. The Bible says, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? What you have from God, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. It's not just about a spiritual reality, friends. It's actually a physical reality as well we need to take care of. So Nehemiah speaks to us about that, right? We need to be careful. Who are we allowing? The second failure that was discovered was that the offerings for the temple staff were neglected. Now this is the way God had designed it, that those who served him by helping the people to worship God, so the priests and the Levites, they were supposed to be supported by the offerings of God's people. So there was a whole big structure about that, all kinds of rules and regulations about how you're supposed to come and bring your offerings as well as other stuff to support these people. And they had neglected that. They had not followed through like they were supposed to. And so the offerings of the temple were not meeting the needs. So much so that the Levites and the singers, these people had led this wonderful worship in Ezra's time, now can't stay at the temple and do their work. They have to go back to their farms and areas, work so they can support themselves to do the work of God. You get the idea? This neglect was wrong. And so Nehemiah corrected it. And you all know the, the passage because the two prophets of God in the Old Testament that we know about that spoke messages to the people of God in this time were Zechariah and Malachi. Many of you have heard the Malachi 3.10 passage, right? Bring all the tithes to the storehouse. Pastor gets up here and he, he wants to encourage people to give money, right? I'm just kidding, but anyway. Bring all the tithes to the storehouse. Now you understand, when Malachi gave that command to the people, he was not talking about 10%, because that's why he said tithes. There are several tithes that they're responsible for. As we try and sort that out, and I won't have time to tell you that this morning, it looks like the requirement was about 23% of a person's income went to the house of God. Do you get the idea? There were actually three tithes. Tithe doesn't always mean 10%. So bring it back like it should, Malachi thundered. Nehemiah corrected. So my question to you as we think about that, this neglect of the offerings, I, I just wonder, I'm asking myself these questions. I'm not preaching at you, friends. This is us together talking about God's word, how we need to embrace it, how are you responding to God's exhortation to provide for his ministry so the ministry can flourish? How do you respond? When you hear, we have friends here that made an appeal today. When there's an appeal 
to do the work of God. You can only do one dollar of ministry with a dollar. You understand that? You can't do ministry in a vacuum. When the appeal goes out, what is your immediate reaction? Oh, that's someone else should listen to that. Oh, I got to go redo my budget. That's too much work. Oh, I gave last time. Someone else can do it this time. Oh, I'm too young. I'm trying to buy a house. I don't have any money. Do you put the support of God's work first in your life? It's where it belongs. When you make your budget, do you actually take tithes and offerings off the top? Or do you take tithes and then you say, and as God bless it, I don't know how you do it, but I'm just challenging you. My wife and I have found over the years that as God has blessed us, we keep giving a bigger percentage. Because according to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7 and 8, it's not a restrictive amount. It's to be sacrificial. It's to be involved in what's called the grace of giving. As God pours his grace into your life, you give. Amen? Now, I got to tell you, no one paid me to say this in the church today, okay? You're all looking at me like, oh yeah, Pastor Gary had a conversation with him and no, no. This is me speaking the truth of God to you. How do you respond? Question, right? The good news is when, when Nehemiah spoke to the people, they got it and they corrected the problem. And so now the support started to happen again. Then the, um, the next failure was the Sabbath was abused. Boy, this is a biggie. And um, friends, the Sabbath was a sacred day set aside, but there were other Sabbaths built into the system. Remember, every seven years they had a Sabbath year. Every 49 years they had a year of Jubilee. When the, so for two years, you're 49 and 50, you didn't work. sounds good to me right problem was they never trusted God enough to do it and by the way that's one of the reasons that the prophet Ezekiel said that the people of God were going to be 70 years in Babylon was to make up for all those Sabbath years they never obeyed God so I don't know what your understanding of the Sabbath is all I know is this, God established it because we live busy lives and he wants us to take space in our lives to set aside for rest, relaxation, and worshiping him. All three. It's not just to sit there in an easy chair and say, oh, that's great. You can do stuff, but it needs to be different than the normal practice of your life to refresh you, to encourage you. Do you take that space in your life? These people had abused it. They weren't. In fact, what was happening on the Sabbath, if you read the text in verses 15 to 22, the merchants were bringing all their goods on the Sabbath into the city, selling it like it was just like any other day. And I'm telling you, Nehemiah got worked up about that one. He was angry. So he said, that's got to stop everybody out of the city. Shut the gates. It's never going to happen. <laughs> you know what these merchants did? They went and parked themselves right outside the gate. So as soon as the Sabbath ended, they're right in there doing it again. So he says, stay away. Don't even come close to the city. I'm so upset with you. Why? Because it was an abuse of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is set aside, friends. Listen carefully. So the priority of your relationship with God, your worship of God, is greater than your worship of the idols in your life. All of us are idol worshipers. We're made that way. 
We're made to worship. The question is, do you worship God or do you worship idols? The idols of career, the idols of money, the idols of sports, the idols, you name them. Things that take our attention away from God. A lot of it's very necessary, but if it's totally consuming your life, you aren't practicing Sabbath. So, I'm just going to give you a little challenge. We're entering into the Holy Week, the week set aside to celebrate all the great things God did for us for our salvation. Amen? The death of Christ, the resurrection. I challenge you, take a little more time this week. Set some time aside, different than normal, to reflect, to read, to think about the great cost of our salvation. How it actually challenges the idols in our life. The Sabbath was abused. Jesus, through his apostle Paul, said, I I beseech you, brothers, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. I confess to you, that's a big challenge in my life. Every day, every day, how is the world squeezing me into its mold? This is what you need to worship to be successful. Well, if I haven't got your attention yet, here's the fourth failure. He discovered that the men of Judah had married forbidden people. All right? This is the fourth failure. The men of Judah had married, and of course he lists them, they'd married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Here we get the Moabites and the Ammonites again, these wicked people that God said, don't be with them. And the reason this was such a wrong thing was because it says in the text in Nehemiah there that the reason was when you marry people like that who worship other gods, they tend to draw your heart towards the worship of other gods than the one true God. And then it's interesting, right, in the text he says, and by the way, if you have never thought about that, he says, think about your great King Solomon. He said, that's what happened to Solomon. Now you know that back in Deuteronomy, God had given instructions of what kings should do. They weren't supposed to marry many women. They weren't supposed to have a lot of horses or a big army. They weren't supposed to multiply wealth. Instead, they were supposed to write their own copy of the Torah. Not one king that I know of did them. And Solomon was pretty bad at all of those, right? All you wise Bible students, how many wives did Solomon marry? I don't have any money. I usually have some toonies and I throw them out to anybody that's got the right answer here. Well, 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's pretty close to 1,000, right? From all kinds of nations. And what does the Bible say happened to his heart? Those women took his heart away from God. And he actually built temples in Jerusalem for the worship of those other gods. So this wasn't a vacant threat that Nehemiah was making here. It was based on a history. Don't marry people that don't love God. Friends, I didn't say that. God did. And it happens too much in our churches today. And it's too much bother to marry. We just live together. So we can play around with God. You think I'm making this up? I'm an elder in a church. We deal with this stuff all the time. Beautiful young ladies that love God, love God. Or a young man loves God. 
and they meet someone that is not a Christ follower but it's a nice person, a really nice person. They really care about me. They treat me like a king or a queen. I really, I love this person. Yeah, but you shouldn't marry them. I know business guys that want to do business and they find a partner. They enter in a 50-50 partnership with someone that's not saved. Then the business prospers and the Christ follower businessman or businesswoman wants to give a portion of the income to the things of God. The other partner says, no way. Can't do that. You follow what I'm saying? What did the Bible say to us in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 16? Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Don't link up light and darkness. That's what was happening here. And the people were going away from God, drawn away. So my question to you is, is there in any part of your life on an equal yoke with an unbeliever? In your life or your business? How about it? Is it drawing you away from God? I know I've heard the story a thousand times. Oh, I am witnessing to that person. In time, they'll come to Christ. Yeah, once in a while that works, but not normally. And it doesn't matter to me because it's wrong. Amen? Don't try and convince me it's okay because it might work out. It's wrong. Flat out wrong. So stop it. Now, do you understand how excited Nehemiah got? When it was the story about the Sabbath being abused, he got so upset he was yelling at the people. But when it came to this intermarriage, he got so upset. Did you read it? He brought curses on the people and then he beat the men and then he started pulling the hair out of their beards. Was he, was he kind of worked up? When's the last time the pastor did that to you? Because he was so upset. Gary was here this morning right down there and I asked him and he just smiled. This was big stuff. If the people of God we're going to actually be who he wanted them to be moving forward. These failures had to be dealt with. Do you follow what I'm saying, friends? Couldn't carry on. So, discovered failures. But here's what I want to say. The failure was bigger than just the activities. These particular failures that are outlined in Nehemiah's time revealed a greater problem that still exists today, and that is that the actual activities indicate a heart problem. That's the problem. We have a heart problem. It all comes back to the heart. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. How are you guarding your heart? What strategy do you have to guard your heart, to keep it from embracing those things that are not Christ-honoring? Philippians 4 talks about things we should think about. You see, through our mind impacts our heart. So do you think about things that are good, lovely? Or what are you thinking about? Heart problem. And I just want to say this pattern of failure by the people of God was a long-standing problem. It didn't just start when they came back out of exile. It didn't just start there. It started back in the wilderness when they came out of Egypt. I see the time's going away so I got to quit quickly here but it began in the wilderness remember the story of the golden calf 
The people of God are instructed by the Lord about how they're supposed to live. And then he asks them the question, will you obey me? And they say, in, it's right there. In, you just take a look, write it down. Exodus 24, 7. We will obey. That was their answer. All that the God says, we'll do. We'll do it all. And just a few months later, maybe not even that long, when Moses goes up on the mountain of God to get the Ten Commandments, and he's gone for 40 days, the people say to Aaron, we don't know what happened to that Moses. Help us worship. Remember what he said? It's a hilarious story. Okay, ladies, give me all your earrings, right? Golden earrings. And he tells Moses later, I just threw them in the fire and out jumped a golden calf. Try that one on your parents. Oh, I just, and out came a golden calf. You see, this problem began way back then. And then shortly after, they're supposed to enter the promised land, right? Through Kadesh. They send spies, 12 spies. 10 come back, say we can't do it. Two say we can't. So what do the people do? Let's stone Moses. Let's get rid of Moses. Let's go back to Egypt. God was so upset with them. What did he say? Moses, step aside. I'm going to wipe out all these people. Make a people out of you. And he says, God, don't do that. You do that, that your enemies are going to say, you didn't have the power to bring these people all the way from Egypt to the promised land. And God relents. But this problem, this heart problem of failure based on not, uh, on not following God, not obeying God. You go through the period of the judges and the kings. They'd sin, they'd suffer, they'd cry out to God, he'd save them. Bad kings, good kings, this pattern of behavior. And it had carried on right to the place where it got so bad, God said, enough's enough. And he brought Nebuchadnezzar in and in three different wars, defeated them three times and deported them in three different bunches to Babylon between 605 and 586. Don't you think the people would have learned? Here we are just 100 years later and what's happening? Disobeying God again. I'm telling you, friends, it doesn't take long. Everybody knows Christianity is one generation from extinction. Do you know that? Because every one of us has to make a decision. Are we going to obey God? But this is the good news, and I finish with this. The almost constant failures did not defeat the greater story that God was writing. Aren't you glad? Our failures don't defeat God's efforts to fulfill his kingdom purposes. Throughout Israel's history, there's always been a godly remnant. They persevered. They fulfilled God's promises. And, and in doing so, even during these 400 years that we don't have any history, the reason God was writing his story in a group of people that loved him and were faithful didn't mean they weren't ever failing in some of their activities, but they weren't failures. They had a heart for God. They'd confessed their sin. It was because he wanted his word recorded in a trustworthy way. And that was done by the scribes. I wish I had time to tell you how careful they were in transmitting. So we today have the Old Testament and it's really, really accurate. When they found Dead Sea Scrolls recently, they didn't have to change the Old Testament. But more than that, he wanted a line of people that would give birth to Jesus. Amen? It wasn't just the written word, it was the living word, the triumphant Messiah. This is why God kept writing.
his story in the midst of all the failures. It was referred to by our friends this morning. I said it. There's a song I like. God never stops working. Even when you can't see it, he's working. Even when you can't feel it, he's working. He never stops working. Do you know that? He's working in this church. He's working in your life if your heart is open to it. If your heart is like, no way, God, you can't do that, then we got a problem. He'll still get his work accomplished, but not through you. So 400 years later, 400 years later, we don't have much history written down in the Bible. There's lots of it written. Read Josephus. Those 400 years were filled with activity. And much of it was great persecution and great rejection on the people of God by Greek and Roman leaders. There still was a faithful remnant. And so here's some names of people that show up after 400 years. And I believe it, friends, is because Nehemiah did his responsibility well. He brought correction. So 400 years later, you have people like Zachariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, right? Godly people doing his work for God. And then you have Joseph and Mary. They didn't just show up. They were products of godly homes, passing generationally the truth of God, generation, generation. Then you have people like Simeon and Anna that met when Jesus shows up to be dedicated. These people were at the temple looking for the Messiah. You have John the Baptist. You have the story of Jesus starting to gather his followers. Remember this story? Here's this guy. He's out kind of doing his thing, and he bumps into Jesus. His name's Andrew. He goes and finds his brother Simon Peter. Says, hey, Peter, I think we found the Messiah. Where did that come from? The godly remnant, the line going down generationally. And then, of course, Nathaniel meets him, and uh, Philip meets him, and he says to Nathaniel the same thing. But here's what I want to finish with. The preeminent example of how God works is in the story of Jesus. The story we're celebrating. You see, the life of Jesus provides what we need to know, and that is God's always at work. And if you obey him, you'll be part of his work. You'll experience the great blessing. So Jesus comes. The world he created didn't recognize him, John 1.10. The people of God he came to, his own, they didn't receive him, John 1.11. The spiritual leaders of the nation rejected him and called out to crucify him in John 11. Most of his closest followers abandoned him in his need. But remember, most of them actually became the leaders of the church. Isn't that good news? Failure does not have to be permanent if it's repented, if you learn from it, if you embrace the power and glory of God in your life. And of course, then he was crucified and it seemed like the end of the story, this kingdom adventure, this Messiah we thought was going to change everything for the better, gone. That's what the two disciples on the road to Emmaus thought. Some of you were here last summer when I spoke and I gave a message about baseball. You remember that? God wants you to step up to the plate and hit some pitches out of the park. One of my favorite characters from baseball is Yogi Berra. He has a saying, it ain't over till it's over. Friends, I want to tell you, it ain't over because it's not over. Amen? 
the work of God will carry on till Jesus comes back. And you can be part of that if you're part of the faithful remnant. What individual failures you may have in your life, you don't have to, you don't have to become a failure. Learn from them and move on in the grace and goodness of God. Learn the fact that God is the hero of the story. It's not about you, it's about him. Your apparent failure can lead your life to a new story if you embrace it the way God wants you to embrace it. Get back to obeying God and you can bring pleasure to God's heart. So friends, what do we need? We need a transformed heart by the powerful grace of God. I don't know where you're on your journey. Has your heart ever been transformed? In that initial sense, you became a follower of Jesus. If not, today's a good day. I'll stay down front afterwards. Be happy to talk to anybody who wants to know more about this message. How you can turn failure into the back door towards success. Actually living for God. I'll be happy to pray with you. Or come and pray by yourself. But somehow this week, embrace the hero of the story, God, as he continues it right down to today until Jesus comes. Amen, my friends? We're going to pray, and then the worship team's going to come and sing one song, and then we're dismissed. Failure does not have to be permanent. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this truth. Speak into our hearts, whatever the need is, whether we need to come to you in faith for the first time, actually committing ourselves to you as the God of our lives, or whether we need to come and make a fresh start. We have failed in some specific way in our lives. We are not following you. God, I pray that there'd be some repenting and some returning today. I close with this. May God himself, the God of grace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. And I know he will. God bless you. We're going to just close with two choruses. And the first one is Build My Life. And in the bridge it says, Build my life upon your love, for it is a firm foundation. And um, I'm sure a lot of us are very familiar with failure, and myself included. And it's easy to beat myself up (laughs) pretty good.